When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Right now, in this sports desert we're living in, we would settle for any game. The Marlins against the Tigers would be like a World Series. The Bengals against their practice squad would be like a Super Bowl. But it's easy to forget just how many games fall into the folds of a schedule, especially in baseball with its 162-date slog. So consider a game on July 11th, 1990 between the Royals and the Orioles. Two meh teams, both under 500. A rain out the night before, barely 20,000 fans in the stands at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. But this is one of the great joys of sports, not just baseball. It doesn't take much for a game to go from unmemorable to unforgettable. In the case of this baseball game from 30 summers ago, the moment of magic came in the third inning, when Orioles outfielder Joe Orsalak sent a fly ball to center field. It looked like trouble, but Bo Jackson, the Kansas City center fielder, dashed to the ball. On the dead run in left center, his back to the plate, Jackson caught up to the ball, extended his left arm, and made a dazzling catch that even the Orioles crowd applauded. It's what came next, though, that will be frozen in amber. The podcast is, of course, an audio medium, so you should feel free to spark up YouTube and watch this one for yourself. But after Jackson caught the ball, his forward momentum carried him. Countless times we've seen this before, right? Outfielders trying to pump the brakes, but they continue until they hit the immovable object that is the outfield wall. They go down. More often than not, they hold on to the ball and then hold it up triumphantly until a teammate comes to lend a hand and help them up. But not Bo Jackson. He continued on his way, and then, at the point of impact, he took one step up the wall, as if on some invisible escalator. Then another, and a third. And finally, having turned his body 180 degrees in the process, he descended gracefully. Years later, Bo Jackson would tell AL.com, the website in his home state of Alabama, that this was all function over form. He said, quote, At the angle that I was running, if I'd crashed into the wall, I probably would have re-injured my shoulder. So instead of crashing into it, I just decided to do what I used to do when I was a kid and just run up the wall and come back down. That seemed easier to me and logical. Sure enough, Jackson at the time reacted like he'd done nothing more remarkable than, say, tie a shoe or stick a letter in a mailbox. He tossed the ball back into the infield and jogged to his position, never even cracking a grin. He left that to everyone else. If scaling a wall was superhero stuff, Spider-Man is the obvious comp, well, this was Jackson's M.O. He, of course, played football and baseball. And he was no dilettante. He made the MLB All-Star Game and the NFL Pro Bowl, the only player ever to do that. For two years, he rivaled Michael Jordan among the brightest stars in the sports cosmos. And then... Jackson hurt his hip, and well, we'll turn to Steve Wolf, a longtime Sports Illustrated baseball bard and lovely guy to boot, who often gushed about Bo Jackson. Steve Wolf put Jackson's demise this way. The film snapped just like that. The audience groaned, the lights came on in the theater, and everybody turned toward the projection booth. What happened? Who's responsible? When is this movie coming back on? Plenty of pixels and plenty of ink have been devoted to Bo Jackson's demise, how the greatest two-sport athlete who scaled walls because, well, it was easy and logical, how he tiptoed out of sports. But today's podcast is devoted more to the beginning than the end. 
SI's Jessica Smetana has the story of Jackson's ascent when he was at Auburn and began to pierce the public consciousness. This was, of course, pre-internet, and while today he would have been a sensation, think of Zion or Joe Burroughs, back then Bo Jackson's story had the ring of myth. Sports Illustrated went to Alabama to see this folk hero in person, and it's here that Jessica starts today's story. Fourth and goal to go for Auburn. And I see the Auburn players are asking for quiet, Pat. Nobody split. Give the ball. Up and over. And in. I believe. Touchdown. Touchdown, Auburn. Imagine an athlete so gifted that the very abundance of his gifts worked to obscure his greatness. That's a tough concept to latch onto, but consider Jackson's case. We knew the body was a great talent, but we didn't know that he was that great a back in high school, says Auburn coach Pat Dye. And who could tell? At McAdory High in McCalla, Alabama, he'd only carry the ball 11 times a game because he was so busy playing every down on defense, returning kicks, kicking off, punting and kicking point after attempts and field goals. He didn't pile up great stats, says McAdory coach Dick Atchison, because he never came off the field. Jackson says that's not true. I'd leave the field to put on the kicking shoe, he says, and I'd leave to take it off. That excerpt is from Alex Wolf's article, Bow on the Go, that appeared in the September 5, 1984 edition of Sports Illustrated. By 1984, Bo Jackson had already gone over the top, literally, in a game against Alabama that marked Auburn's first victory over their in-state rival in nine seasons. With the ball on the one-yard line, Jackson, the freshman back, took the handoff and leapt over Alabama's defensive line, winning the game for the Tigers in a play that is so famous that it now has its own Wikipedia page. Alex Wolf visited the Bessemer, Alabama native, drove around town in his Oldsmobile, and got a sense of the player that had taken the nation by storm, not just because of his football prowess, but because he excelled in baseball and track as well. Jackson was the most intriguing sports star in decades and was quickly forging his own path to athletic stardom. Here's Alex Wolf. Yeah, he was pretty extraordinary even then as a junior, about to be a junior at Auburn. How old were you when you got this assignment? And where were you at in your career? And what were you covering for Sports Illustrated at the time? Well, I was really still just primarily a basketball writer. But, you know, in the summer, there isn't a whole lot of hoop going on. And the college football preview issue was coming together. And I did know my way already a little bit around college campuses. So this would have been 1984, and I joined the staff in 1980. So I'd have been in my mid to late 20s. And I'd been to Auburn a few times. Actually, I may have been to Auburn for a Charles Barkley story, actually, only a few months earlier. So I knew a little bit about the culture of the place. But I came at Bow pretty freshly because I wasn't steeped in college football and uh Really enjoyed him right off the bat. I remember the um, the first thing that the Auburn people told me was, uh, Bo cannot get in a car with you. If you're in a car with him, he has to be at the wheel. He has to drive you or else it's an NCAA violation. The fact that he had a late model Oldsmobile Cutlass uh, didn't seem to be anything that would raise an NCAA eyebrow, but um, he had to be at the wheel. But that turned out to be great because that meant I had two hands free to take notes. Yeah, and you guys drove all over the place in this story. Where did you go and, and what did you do with him while you were reporting this? 
Well, I got into the shotgun seat of this this late model 83 Olds Cutlass, and Bo had a speaking engagement up at this school in Talladega, Alabama, school for deaf and blind kids. And the Auburn people said, yeah, why don't you just go with him up there? You'll have time to chat in the car. And I love for stories being just a fly on the wall, seeing somebody in another element where it's not a formal interview situation. And it was great. He got up there in front of all these these kids with with two different kinds of disabilities. And it was the strangest thing because he's telling them to stay out of trouble. And these are kids who aren't going to get into trouble. You know, they they wouldn't recognize trouble because they're deaf and blind. And but that was a little clue as to what Bo's life up to that point had been like. He, as a kid, had been constantly getting into trouble. And you know, he was a, obviously a big kid, um, physically just really impressive. And he a bit of a bully and a juvenile delinquent until he went off to college. And the thing I really noticed about him was how determined he was to stay out of trouble, that he realized that his future was pretty secure as long as he didn't mess it up. What did you already know about Bo Jackson at the time, and what had he already accomplished? Yeah, so he was about to go into his junior year, um, and he was this Heisman Trophy candidate. So he'd already made his mark. Um, The thing that had come to me was just this extraordinary raw athletic ability that um, he was a kid who'd won the Alabama State Decathlon title in high school without even bothering to run the mile, the last event. (laughs) Because he didn't want to run a distance. It wasn't his thing. And he still won the title. Um, he'd already beaten Alabama with this incredible wriggling goal line rush where he purely on his strength and will had to get that last few inches to clear the goal line. And, and that was a big deal, not just because it was Auburn beating Alabama uh, by a point. But the one thing that that I thought was so fascinating, you know, nowadays we think of these great prospects as having been measured six ways to Sunday and everybody knows precisely where in the pecking order they fall. This was a guy who only carried the ball 11 times a game in high school. So Auburn knew that they had a gem in him, but they had no idea of the, uh, the upside, you know, just how much was still on the table to be harvested with this guy and his talent. He was so multidimensional. He was such a great athlete that in high school, he'd never leave the field. And, you know, he was, punting, he was playing defense, and, and he just didn't didn't have the energy to run but 11 times when he was on the offensive side of the ball. So that was a little bit of a, just listening to his coaches talk about, gee, we, we need to teach him to kind of tilt his body to run, just how much upside there was. And even Bo was was pretty pretty excited and, and, and uh, enthused about that, that there was this kind of untapped thing in him that that his coaches were whispering in his ear, hey, it's there for the taking. Why did he choose Auburn then? I mean, you get into it a little bit in the story, but it still seems like a very interesting decision looking back that he would choose Auburn instead of Alabama, especially, you know, while Alabama is still at the top and had beaten Auburn nine years in a row in the Iron Bowl. Yeah, it, it was it was astonishing. And it was to hear Bo tell it. And this is really the only thing I had to go on. It was because this one recruiter um, apparently was an assistant coach had said, you, know, you really have nowhere else to go and we just stockpile talent and you're gonna have to wait your turn. And um, he he had this way of being motivated by, sometimes by slights and sometimes because he felt that 
Uh, he might have been his own worst enemy. Uh, there was this wonderful scene in, in reporting the story where he described for me the time he got a parking ticket in downtown Auburn. And before doing anything else, when he saw the thing on the windshield, he got in his car and drove down to the police station and paid the parking ticket. He just was determined not to put himself in a vulnerable position. Um, so, yeah, it's, I don't know whether Bo knew that by going to Auburn and passing up on Alabama, he would control that narrative, that he was that good, that suddenly that nine loss in, in a row streak to Alabama would come to a crashing end. But that's indeed what happened. Were Auburn football games nationally televised at the time? What was Auburn's level of exposure compared to Alabama? Yeah, Auburn was was a power. Alabama was winning that in-state rivalry. And there were a handful of other SEC powers like Florida and Tennessee that were in in the hunt. But Auburn was always right there. I mean, the best analogy for somebody like me who's coming from the college basketball ranks would probably be, oh, think of ACC basketball where, you know, Carolina was kind of the lord of the manor. But you knew that in any given year that Duke or even North Carolina State or Clemson or Wake Forest could uh, or Maryland could make a run at it. And Auburn was definitely in the conversation. Um, Alabama's whole philosophy of recruiting was let's see if we can recruit four or five deep on the depth chart and thereby deprive all these SEC rivals of even having a chance against us. And that would work up to a point. But if you can't get a guy like Bo Jackson um, to at least sit on your bench until late in your sophomore year, which seemed to have been their plan for him, he's liable to go to an Auburn and beat you. Were Charles Barkley and Bo Jackson friends at Auburn? I don't know if Bo and Charles were actually friends at Auburn. Um, I'm sure that they ran in the same social circles because there was some overlap in their time there. At the training table, I'll bet they ran into each other because uh, Charles never missed the training table. And some of the most fun I had reporting the story on Bo was to go by the training table and to hear stories from the people who worked there, including how he would love to take uh, straws and chew on them. It was a substitute for chewing tobacco. Um, and when he got really nervous, he would go through a straw every couple of minutes. Bo compared to Charles, and they're very vivid in my mind from that same chapter of their life on the same cam- campus. Very different people. I mean, Bo had a stammer. Um, I think some of his hyperactivity was to, to try to manage that, whereas Charles was already just this incredibly poised, social, confident, engaging, one step ahead of you in every conversation kind of guy. And um, I remember thinking, I saw Charles after a uh, late season SEC basketball game meet John Glenn, the Ohio senator who was then running for president. And they had an encounter outside the uh, Auburn locker room. And I remember thinking, oh, this guy Glenn doesn't have a chance. This guy Barkley from from Auburn is much more charismatic, much more engaging on the stump, has a much firmer handshake, uh, which kind of was borne out. Um, but yeah, they were very different characters. But I think that what they had in common was they were pretty simple Alabama guys who felt pretty comfortable on that campus. And um, a place that was any faster or less congenial, uh, might have been a little bit out of their element. And I'm not saying Tuscaloosa would have been that, but Auburn is just this little college town near the Georgia border, and they both seemed really comfortable there. 
Was it normal to do a national profile on an athlete like Bo Jackson at this time for Sports Illustrated? Granted, he hadn't won the Heisman yet, but he was very well known and popular at the time. But at the same time, he was only, you know, 20 years old and he was getting a huge spread in the magazine. Yeah, I think given the circumstance here, you had a guy who'd been offered a quarter million dollars by the Yankees coming out of high school to play baseball. Um, He was a great raw talent as a sprinter. Uh, He wasn't quite up to making the Olympics, but had it there, if he'd really put his mind to it, he probably could have been an Olympic caliber sprinter. And he had that amazing game against Auburn. Um, So there's a little bit of a legend building about him. And back in the 80s, we had so many ad pages in in the magazine. When the college football preview came around, uh, we had scouting reports. We could do all sorts of very cool things. So um, to follow this guy around and to know that there'd be the access, um, that I would get to sit in the shotgun seat while Bo was driving me around the state of Alabama. These tornadoes had touched down and there was all this wreckage outside the window of the cars we were driving around. So it made for this this kind of dramatic scene that, that you could play with. They were going to do anything they could to, to give me time with him. This was back in the day when schools worked really hard to get their Heisman candidates as much publicity as possible. And um, I wasn't going to pass that up. And I knew from doing the Barkley stuff that Auburn and their assistant AD and sports information guy at the time, a guy named David Housel, who was a huge personality, um, he was going to do anything uh, that it took to give me access. Between the track, the baseball, the football, the lecturing students and everything else, did Bo Jackson ever have any downtime when he was a student at Auburn? (laughs) Um, You know, I caught him at a time when classes hadn't really fully gone into session and he was really relaxed. But I was I would guess that after I left Auburn and the story appeared and he embarked on what was a, a very intense junior season, I'm guessing that he didn't have a whole lot of time. So I felt very lucky that I I caught him when he was fairly relaxed. I mean, the same way with Barkley. I got him in season. but he was pretty relaxed. He, uh, I remember him getting all excited that uh, Sports Illustrated was picking up the tab on the peaches that that we were going to have, and that um, it didn't have to be Domino's; it could be Godfather's. And for him, that was a huge step. Barkley, I'm talking about now. That was a huge step up. I think Bo knew that he was about to go over the falls, as it were, that things were going to get really intense. But that was a time when SI came to town. It was it was a really big deal, and. Um, he wasn't on the cover of our college football preview issue, but um, I think Boney, Bernie Kosar of Miami was on the cover. But it was a it was a huge um, it was a huge deal back in the day, and they were going to make time, and he he seemed to have it. He seemed to have the time. That was going to change um, in pretty short order with the season getting underway. But for the moment, it was it was pretty relaxed. So you mentioned that he was possibly an Olympic caliber sprinter. We know that he was an NFL caliber running back in a MLB caliber outfielder because he went on and did those things. But at this time in Bo Jackson's life and his, you know, amateur career, did he have this feeling that maybe if I specialized in one sport, I could be, you know, exceptional at it rather than being really great at multiple things? Or was that not something he had considered yet? He wasn't talking in those terms quite yet. He was 
he was still kind of taking stock of his many talents, I think. He was really trying to stay out of trouble. Like, what could I do that might mess up all these possibilities? Let me avoid that. Um, and I think the thing about football uh, that was so appealing is it was something that he was getting a lot of positive reinforcement for because he was an Alabama kid at Auburn. Um, there's always a little bit of a wild card with baseball. What if you can't hit the curveball? And he struck out a lot in SEC baseball games. So there might have been a little bit of quavering confidence in baseball. And then in, in track, he hadn't yet really broken through in an elite way that he had already broken through in football. So I think football at that time was lead, the leader in the clubhouse of those three options. But as history tells us clearly that um, he was able to do it in baseball too. And, and you know, in track, I can't believe he wouldn't have been uh, just superb at it if he'd, uh, if he'd been able to spend the time. Did you get the sense that he was doing all of these things because he didn't really, like you said, he was a troublemaker. He admitted it all the time. He didn't want to follow the rules of, you know, you have to pick one thing and be good at it. And this was kind of his way of keeping with that troublemaker, break the rules or set your own rules type of mentality that he had growing up that, you know, I, I'm not going to let anyone tell me that I have to do one thing. I'm going to do whatever I want and I'm going to be really good at it. You're onto something, Jessica. Absolutely. I mean, I think his repast to that Alabama recruiter, like, what, what do you mean you have no other options? I have no other options. I can do anything I want. Um, he was stubborn. And and the nickname Bo, remember his real given first name is Vincent, but he got the nickname Bo from a brother because the brother described him as being tough as a boar hog, Bo being a shortened version of a boar. And I think part of that is just the stubbornness. Um, and that did impress me that, that he was stubborn, you know, that he, he was happy to prove things to people. He was happy to get up in front of kids and, and tell them, you know, this, this is the way it ought to be. There was a wonderful story um, because Bo hadn't participated in spring practice. Um, he wasn't allowed to play in the Auburn spring game, but he was, of course, there. So he went to the Auburn Athletic Department and said, I love kids. Let's set up some sort of a promotion at the spring game where I'll race the kids. And they did that. And Bo spotted the kids like 15 yards head start and they ran a 100 yard dash. And it was that kind of engagement. I think he loved being um, a role model. Um, and that kind of led to things we saw later in his, his professional career, careers, plural, uh, which was the Bono stuff, you know, that, um, you know, yeah, I can do this. Watch me do this. Maybe you can do it, too. There was that little uh, little twinkle in his eye about it. Uh, so, yeah, no, there was definitely some of that contrarian streak in him that I think really made him a, a great athlete and led him to take on these challenges. In your story, you have a lot of Bo Jackson wisdom that he shared with you. For example, there's one quote that says, that's what I'm going to say to you. Don't run life too fast. You only have one. You'll either be somewhere serving time or pushing up daisies. Obey your parents. In my life, they've been three roads, a high road, a low road, and in between a just road. Right now I'm on that just road. With God's help, I'm just about to get to the top, to the high road. Um, for such a young athlete, how did he come up with all of these like bow-isms and this wisdom? It, it seems so you know, fascinating to see that he had already this very mature outlook on life as a junior in college. So it was really the first time in, 
30 years, I, I went more than 30 years, I went back and reread that story. And I, I was struck by the same thing. Where did this all come from? And I, I'd like to think that by getting him at the wheel of the car, it made him feel kind of more confident and more in charge and at, metaphorically at the wheel. And all I had to do was sort of write down what he had to say. He was chewing on a straw, which probably relaxed him. But but there's a consistency to the, those boisms, as you call them. They, they all kind of have to do with um, taking care of your business, uh, playing it straight, stay out of trouble, uh, pay that parking ticket before you forget about it. You know, it's very, very consistent. And I wonder if it was the trouble he got into when he was young. He, he told this one story about um, because he would get into trouble, he would sometimes get awakened in the middle of the night by his mother and told to go outside and uh, cut the grass in the moonlight or just <laughs> some chore. Um, so there, there, I think there was kind of hanging in the back of his mind all the time, this sense of, um, you know, there might be hell to pay if I don't, if I don't handle my business properly. And, um, but yeah, absolutely. Here you read back some of these quotes and for me to reread them here, 35, 36 years later, it's striking how poised and, he was. And um, as best as I can tell, he, he kept his nose real clean through the rest of his professional career. We talked a little bit about how Bo Jackson chose Auburn over Alabama, and Auburn was always a contender but could never beat Alabama until he got there. Um, what did him attending Auburn do for Auburn as a whole in the 80s? And what is his legacy like at Auburn to this day? Well, Auburn, of course, had had a Heisman Trophy winner in Pat Sullivan. The, the trophy itself was actually sitting out there uh, in the athletic complex, and Bo would see it every day. Uh, but yeah, that, I, I think having an Alabama kid of that stature um, choose Auburn just has this kind of validating effect. And Auburn always has been. I mean, even today, I think they derive their strength from it, being that, that second fiddle, the Avis to the Hertz that is in Tuscaloosa. But Auburn is, you know, they, they've, from that position of being the feisty underdog, has written so much more history since the mid-80s that, yeah, you could maybe trace it back to Bo. Um, you know, those nine losses in the Iron Bowl prior to his uh, arriving there and, and changing it. But, yeah, I, I think that that uh, little sister complex at Auburn, um, Barkley went some ways to to getting rid of it. Bo went some ways to getting rid of it. And since then in football and basketball, I mean, they were in the final four just uh, scarcely a year ago. So um, yeah, you, you don't see Auburn thought of nowadays in when you're talking SEC football as anything other than being in the hunt and that's their rightful place. And yeah, you can definitely chase it, trace it all back to Bo. I know that your story is just about Bo Jackson in 1984 and your kind of exposure to him ended after his college career. But since then, he's had such a peculiar professional career in both baseball and football, ending with the hip injury that kind of stopped him from having a long career in either, really. Why do you think that people still are so obsessed with saying that Bo Jackson is like the greatest that never was, or, you know, what if he had never gotten injured instead of just kind of accepting him as, as being one of the you know most dominant athletes of his generation? The idea that Bo Jackson, even if he had never gone to play professionally, hadn't already been this incredible change maker or um, 
a guy who ought to be cast in bronze and put out next to to, to Pat Sullivan's Heisman Trophy. I, I mean, come on, the guy was a three-sport letterman, uh, the first in the Southeastern Conference in 20 years at Auburn. It's, it's just phenomenal what he did. And when you think about the pressure that athletes now get uh, to specialize, and you have coaches that make scholarships contingent on you only playing the sport that you've been recruited for. I think it's the, the idea that this guy pursued something that he really loved to do um, in three different arenas. And, you know, you, you do that, you're liable to set yourself up for an injury. The irony is that um, everything we hear from pediatric orthopedists is that the more you don't specialize, the less likely it is you're going to get overuse injuries, the healthier it is for growing bones in a young body. Um, so in many ways, Bo's hip, hip problem, in theory, would have very little to do with the fact that he played all these sports. Maybe what he needed was a season where he did absolutely nothing and just chewed on some straws. Um, but yeah, the legend of Bo would have been intact, even if he hadn't gone on to play for the Royals and the Raiders, even if there hadn't been a Nike campaign of Bo Nose and all that. Um, I mean, I saw it in Auburn. People were just in thrall of him. And they love Barkley too, but Barkley wasn't a football player. And football is, you know, it's the alpha and the omega of things in the Deep South. So, yeah, I mean, it's one of my great privileges in my career at SI to have been able to work on this story and to have seen this guy just before his junior season when he really wasn't innocent um, when anything was possible, and he was going to do everything possible to keep himself from screwing anything up. Thank you. That was great. I am a little confused, though. Was buying pizza for Charles Barkley not an NCAA violation, but driving the the uh, <laughs> Bo Jackson car was? <laughs> That's a really good question. Um, well, all I can say is the NCAA is a strange place. Um, yes, in theory, I could buy them if we were actually meeting over food to conduct an interview. Um, I was allowed to do that. Oh, okay. And say rules permitted it, okay. SI expense account rules permitted it. You know, in the same way that an assistant coach can't give an athlete a ride on campus, you know, from the training table down to the athletic complex, I couldn't drive that car. Randy Campbell with no wideout pitching to Bo Jackson. Down the little hole, 35, broke a tackle, 30, 35, a 40, midfield, foot race, down the sideline, 30, 20, close on a go, touchdown Auburn! Thanks, Jessica. That's a great look back, and thanks to Alex Wolf, one of the SI Titans, uh, for his recollections. Jessica, let's go back to Auburn, Alabama in the mid-80s and keep going on this deep dive you did Give us more of a sense. Who was Bo Jackson as an undergrad, as an athlete at Auburn? He was a pretty um, unassuming, I would say, sports celebrity on his campus. As unassuming as you could be for someone who was going around the state lecturing high school students and, you know, was a consensus All-American and SEC first teamer. He wasn't like his um, counterpart in basketball at Auburn, Charles Barkley, who was a very charismatic, sociable type on the Auburn campus. Bo Jackson, he liked to work and he liked to play, and he was not someone who spent a lot of time socializing outside of his sport. S sports plural, I should say. <laughs> 
I hear this story and I keep wondering about a few things. And one of them is to what extent do you think Bo Jackson had to lean on his coaches to let him play another sport? Because we hear these stories all the time today about football players who want to play basketball, but their coaches don't let them. This is not something that athletes do very easily today, play football at a Heisman Trophy level and then play other D1 sports at the same school. I'm not sure if he had to lobby at all because his numbers kind of spoke for themselves. He was able to make an impact on all of those teams. And I think it's fair to argue that had he specialized in one sport like football or baseball, he could have been even better at that one thing than he was. But um, in college, in the SEC, he was, you know, the best on his team often. So I don't think his coaches could have asked for a lot more from him than he was already giving them. And so part of the allure of going to watch a Auburn Tigers baseball game or football game or track meet was that you had this guy, Bo Jackson, who was this, you know, monster athlete, and he was good at all of these things. So it would draw more attention to it and kind of helped everyone out, everyone else out in a kind of a symbiotic way, I think. When you go back and think about Bo Jackson, Auburn in the 1980s. Obviously, this is pre-internet, pre-social media. This is the great dividing point of uh, of this era. And I'm wondering, did, did you ever play the thought exercise and think about how things would have gone differently if Bo Jackson, this mythical two-sport athlete who won the Heisman but also was good enough to be a starting Major League Baseball player, ever think about how that would have worked out in the age of social media? If Bo Jackson was around today, I don't know if he would even use social media because like there is one story that is in um wolf's uh sports illustrated story about how he got a parking ticket and drove straight to the police department to pay it off because he didn't want it to become more expensive for him to pay off later and so his his entire kind of like world in this time period revolved around him not getting in trouble and i think he would have seen social media as kind of a vice that he didn't want to even risk participating in like another thing that Alex talks about in the story. And there's this great photo of Bo Jackson in sports illustrated where he's chewing on a straw. Um, and the reason that he chewed on straws was because he didn't want to get addicted to chewing tobacco. So that was kind of like the way that he worked out these, you know, these interesting idiosyncrasies into his life that kind of kept him, kept him clean, if you will. Thanks, Jessica. That was great. That was a lot of fun. That was a great look back at an athlete who, I suspect, to some extent, people certainly uh, of a certain age remember that two-year window or so when this guy could compete with Michael Jordan in terms of star wattage. I think a lot of people remember him as this mythical figure who played in a pro ball and also in a major league all-star game. But so much has been devoted to the downfall of Bo Jackson, the what-if of Bo Jackson. I'm really happy we got to do this deep dive on the origin story. Thanks. Thanks uh, Thanks for following up with me. It was a lot of fun to do. I'm John Wertheim. This is Sports Illustrated's The Record. You can subscribe to The Record on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review, and we'll have another deep dive next week. Our episode today was produced and edited by Jessica Smetana. Alex Campbell is supervising producer on the project. Our executive producer is Scott Brody. And SI's director of digital projects and products is Ben Eagle. Thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next time.